Welcome to the Hobcast, a weekly podcast from Hobeck Books, an independent publisher of thrillers, crime, and suspense novels. Each week, we'll take you behind the scenes of what we do, the challenges and the triumphs, the bumps and troughs of building a new creative business in this pandemic world. We'll hear from the people who make all this possible, the authors, cover designers, and editors, and we'll have expert insights from our guest star interviews. Nothing is off the agenda on the Hopcast from Hobeck Books, as we combine trad values and an indie spirit. Mr. Carter in the room. No, no but, but we're, we're here. here. Welcome again to the Hobcast. And we're in Newcastle. Or Newcastle, as I would say, because I'm a southerner. I would say Newcastle. You would, wouldn't but you? But without the accent. Newcastle. Yeah, Newcastle. Newcastle. Is that right? Well, <laughs> OK, we'll, we'll, we'll test your Geordie accent a little later. Welcome to Newcastle, where we've been on a city break. And also... We've been searching out the locations for a little clip of Get Carter, my favourite British film. And uh, a film that I, I sort of I, I tolerated because you kept watching clips of it every now and then. In the car you were watching it and I thought, oh, it's that again. Um, and then on, I think it was uh, Sunday, last Sunday week. night, wasn't yeah. it, when I said, OK, let's, let, I need to watch this film because... You love it so much. You're so passionate about it. We're going to Newcastle. If I'm going to look at the locations in the film, I probably should watch it. And I, in my head, I thought, I'll do a bit of work while I'm watching this. And just, you know, it's in the background. I was completely and utterly sucked in from the start. I loved it. I would say it's one of the best films I've ever seen as well. It is beautifully made. And it's all the more remarkable. OK, you've got Michael Caine in arguably his greatest role. I know he didn't get Oscar nominated or anything like that, but it was one of those great um, exercises in minimal dialogue, maximum stillness on screen. A lot of the time, I know there's a lot of action in it, but actually if you watch his performance, he walks around like a predator, has a certain bearing, and everyone's scared of him. It's just incredibly powerful, but it's also... a an amazing period piece but the Newcastle that we're looking at across this morning with seagulls playing and a motorhome driving past us we're, we're right on the banks of the Tyne at the moment is completely different from the period 50 years ago when the film was made it's celebrating its 50th anniversary released in 1971 uh, and it was it's remarkable because it was a first time director uh, making the movie and uh, a first time cinematographer certainly making a feature film uh, as well and I think it's one of the best films for uh, the the combination of cinematography and direction in terms of the way that every shot is so beautifully framed isn't it and what you say about the the action and lack of action it's so powerful that you're it's 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 framed so that your brain makes up the action through the, the anticipation of action almost yeah, it's very clever. And you, you've also uh, recently purchased the book. And I've got a thing about first lines. If the first line of a book grabs me, then I'm pretty much sold for the whole book. Get Carter has one of my favourite first lines I've ever come across. And it's very <laughs> evocative of this place as well, even though the first scene doesn't take place in Newcastle. And the first line is, 
The Rain Rained. Yeah, it's written in the first person. It's by Ted Lewis, who uh, sadly didn't... Uh, he passed away in, in the 80s. He was quite a young man, actually, when he passed away. Uh, but credited as one of the godfathers of, of British noir. And uh, the, the book originally was simply known as Jack's Return Home, which is not terribly uh, thrilling title, but um, kind of explains the... What, what happens but they, they rebadged it as Get Carter and now the book is released as Get Carter uh, and it's still a seller so I've uh, got a copy of it we've got Michael Caine on the front with his shotgun <laughs> which yeah. is interesting actually because he doesn't actually have a pump action shotgun in the film and yet he's carrying one in the publicity oh, still interesting detail yes yeah well and look at the size of his cufflinks they're <laughs> massive and, yeah, also, when you were talking about the film, I realised that I am almost the exact same age as the film, 1971. Exactly, yeah, and it was being made when I was born, 1970. So, yeah, there's a sort of kinship, I suppose, there. Mm. But Newcastle is very, very different uh, nowadays. The, the waterfront, for instance, it, rather than, you know, a hive of activity with, with, with quite large ships coming down uh, and warehousing... I mean, it's been replaced by sort of 1980s and 1990s built office blocks, which really have very little, uh, you know, architectural merit. Uh, and then you've got things like the Sage building and the Baltic uh, uh, art gallery, which was a uh, contemporary art gallery, which was uh, a flour mill and uh, was converted. One of the first projects funded by the Millennium uh, Lottery money, I believe, and the Arts Council. Uh, and it was kind of symbolic of the, the recreation of Newcastle as a, as a destination. And that it's done really successfully, judging by the amount of noise that was still going on at four in the morning. <laughs> yes, uh, we're not in the quietest place to stay overnight. I've had about four hours sleep, I think. Right, well, we ought to introduce ourselves uh, formally. We, we've, we're getting lax in the recent episodes of doing <laughs> so and telling you who our guest is going to be. So this is the Hobcast Book Show. I'm Adrian Hobart. I'm Rebecca Collins. Together, we run Hobart Books, and we are UK independent publishers of the following genres. Thrillers. What <laughs> comes out Liverpool? I'm trying to do Geordie. <laughs> <laughs> crime. Oh, that didn't come out. <laughs> How would I do that as a Geordie? Anyway, I'll, uh, crime, anyway. Mystery. No, yes. Suspense. <laughs> yeah, that's good. Suspense. <laughs> well, the trick to it... Uh, according to, I think it's Jimmy Carr, who does this uh, on stage. Or, no, 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 it's Michael um, thingy. Uh, McIntyre? Yeah, Michael McIntyre, who says, if you can say Oompa Loompa, you get, you get a Geordie accent. <laughs> and we've seen a few Oompa Loompas, haven't we? Oh, boy, yeah, have we ever. Uh, it's quite extraordinary how people are prepared to go out in so little except for fake tan. It's not just that, though. They are so... That you can tell they've put a lot of thought into what they're wearing. Whereas mm. when I go out, I just throw any old stuff on a bit of makeup and I wear the same old boots that I wear in the daytime. Yeah, I was noticing when we were eating out last night in a pasta restaurant, you were getting pitying looks from the umpalumpas in the table behind us because you hadn't made an effort compared to them. No, they were looking at you. Yeah, well, okay. I've, I've grown a bit of a grizzly beard since we've been here. <laughs> it's looking pretty tatty. And as I haven't showered this morning, not only do I whiff a bit, uh, I look rough. I look really rough. Thankfully, there's no smell function on a podcast. <laughs> no, there isn't. Anyway, uh, the podcast today, we have a wonderful guest, Jason Dalgleish, or J.M. Dalgleish. Now, if you've ever looked for crime books online on Amazon, you will have seen his books advertised there. 
on the same page as whatever you're looking at because that has been the secret of his success. I mean, he's a great writer and he's gone full-time for the last three years and it's been a remarkable rise. Like so many of our recent guests, proof positive that if you take, the, if you take time with your craft, you write fast, release fast, he writes four books a year, uh, and build a following, you can have a very successful career and he's sold seven figures worth of books so far and most of that advertised through Amazon ads. So we probe him on that. And also, he gets to face... A new feature of the podcast, Rebecca's Random Question. It was a good one. It just came to me, and he coped really well with my random question, so um, that's something to look forward to. It really is. It really is. All oh, three cyclists have gone past, and then somebody with a, uh, a Fiat Cinquecento with two bikes on the front. There's a lot of people out here on bikes. Uh, I think it might be a triathlon or something like that. We've actually taken shelter away from... Uh, early morning announcements of someone very chirpy encouraging runners to do whatever they're going to do today but that's the nature of, of Newcastle as well I mean the Great North Run is uh, is pretty soon I believe and it is a city that embraces its visitors like like few others actually and stops them sleeping yeah that's true yeah you were shaking with fear with all the boy racers who were oh they just every time I was just falling asleep when another <laughs> would go by and I think Okay, another 10 minutes of being awake then. Well, we're presenting the podcast, as I say, from our sort of brief break. What we've done here so far, uh, obviously we've been looking for locations. The the high bridge, uh, is is, is high-level bridge rather, is one of the key scenes in Get Carter. Unfortunately, the Trinity Square car park, which would have been pretty much where we're looking at the moment, has been demolished 10 years ago or so. Uh, one of the iconic parts, but apparently it was a, a, a really failed car park. It was hardly anyone used it, so <laughs> they demolished it and replaced it with a very, very average shopping centre. Uh, and then there are other locations, particularly at the end of the film, where they moved from... We went to visit Blythe, where there were the staves, and that's the bit where they do the chasing at the end, the start of the chase, uh, before Carter kills one of the bad guys. Uh, and then they went on to a beach near Hartlepool, which we haven't ventured down to. Um, we've been to Bamborough Castle, which is spectacular. Yeah, it was lovely, and I, I was determined to dip my toes into the North Sea, and I did. I not only dipped my toes, although I was fully dressed, I went waist high in the water. You <laughs> so also dipped great. the toes. <laughs> I did dip the toes. He which loved is it. the youngest of your sons, <laughs> so he enjoyed that too. Uh, we've been to Hadrian's Wall, which I loved. Yeah, me too, and I'd forgotten that as a child it was one of the places I used to nag my parents. Can we go to Hadrian's Wall one day? And then I gave up eventually because they just kept saying, no, it's too far away from Stafford. Stop it. Yeah, it's fascinating. <laughs> we went to Hausted's Fort. Um, I knew a fair bit about that sort of thing because I studied at a university, but it was the first visit there, which is kind of crazy. But it's been fantastic. So thank you, Newcastle, for our trip. We'll talk more about it a little bit later. Uh, news. I haven't spotted a lot this week. Um, no, again, I mean, it's, it's been difficult because we haven't been in, at home, so we haven't really had much time for uh, browsing internet and you know picking up news items the only thing that caught my eye again it's a very me sort of news item it's um the marketing team who are looking after hamnet by maggie o'farrell which i'm halfway through listening in the car and i think it's brilliant i absolutely love it not much happens but it's character and scene setting is fantastic so they have uh, set up a billboard so not just a poster what you normally see they've made it up of flowers lots of different types of white flowers and people are allowed to take bunches of flowers from the billboards they will keep maintaining it i think it's for two weeks 
and it's just a way of a different way of advertising the book. I mean, not that that book needs much publicity, I don't think, because you see quite a lot about it. But I, I quite like that. Yeah, it, it's shifting. It's shifting a few copies. Let's be honest, it's doing extremely well. So um, that's that one news item. I mean, in terms of Hobeck news, uh, we'd like to congratulate Robert Dawes on being cast in an all-star cast appearing at the Theatre Royal in Windsor uh, in October. Uh, it's Chekhov's The Cherry, Cherry Orchard. Orchard yeah. yeah. And uh, um, it's a fantastic cast. It's got Sir Ian McKellen in it, no less. Francesca Annis. Uh, it's also got Martin Shaw. Jenny Seagrove is the only one I recognise. Yeah, Jenny, Jenny Seagrove as well. Uh, it really is a <laughs> world-class cast. I'm sure I've missed out one or two other enormous names, but... Wow, that's going to be fantastic. Six weeks run in Windsor. So fans of Robert Dawes, get your tickets. And uh, we hope to go and pop down and watch him tread the boards. Oh, I'd love to, yeah. So my middle son has expressed an interest too because he quite likes plays. Yeah, he really wants to go and see Gandalf in person, doesn't he? <laughs> uh, so Ian McKellen. Uh, but it's good to see youth getting a chance at the age of 82. You know, wonderful <laughs> to see. Uh, <laughs> it's the same company that have been producing um, Ham- uh, Hamlet at the same theatre. Uh, so Ian McKellen playing Hamlet at 82, the oldest Hamlet in, in, in recorded history. Um, I mean, you know, I'm sure that's been fantastic, but it, it'll be great. And uh, congratulations to Robert. It's great to see him back doing the day job. Yes, um, although we, we do want him to spend some of his free time writing, please, Robert. Uh, the other news, I suppose, uh, semi-Hobeck related, was that Bloody Scotland, I know I ran the gun last week, but they've announced what the panel... Uh, or the, 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 the programme is for Bloody Scotland, which starts on the 17th of September in Stirling. And uh, there's some international influence in the form of Stephen King, uh, Lee Child, Cathy yeah. Rikes and Karen Slaughter appearing by satellite. Uh, and then, of course, our own Mark Whiteman was up there to promote the start of the festival as one of the debut authors up for the, the debut prize. So that was fantastic. Yeah, so we, we've got to see if we can uh, bomb it from Stafford to get to Stirling for 2.30pm. Ain't going to happen. <laughs> <laughs> it's, just, it's just physically impossible if we've got the kids the, the night before. So we'll look into that situation. Uh, well, there, t- two of them are slumbering upstairs. One of them's wriggling around watching breakfast news, no doubt, as yes. we speak. But let's get into our interview with uh, Jason Dalgleish, J.M. Dalgleish who has two crime series. He's published his first one in 2018 and since then has become one of the most successful indie authors in the UK. And uh, he spent some time speaking to us from his home in Kings Lynn in Norfolk, which is also the setting for his most recent series, the, uh, I think it's Hidden Norfolk series. And uh, that, uh, the main protagonist that in that is Tom Janssen. And uh, it's uh, done extremely well. He's built a, a very, very loyal following. Uh, so fascinated to speak to him and uh, he gave us some fantastic tips as well jason dalgleish jm dalgleish uh, for for your readers um thanks so much for joining us on the hobcast you're very welcome thanks for having me on it's our honor um now when we we approached you uh it was really on the recommendation of simon mccleave and obviously if anyone is on amazon at all looking for crime books your your books turn up quite quite frequently i think um so we were aware of your name but uh he, he credited you with a lot of his success do you think that's fair um he, he he said that a few times and i'm i'm very appreciative that um he likes what i what advice i was willing to offer him um but i think if you uh if you write the books you, you deserve the credit to be honest with you so 
It's very kind of him, though. <laughs> Let's talk about writing the books then. Um, um, if you go to your, your website and look at your about section, um, you've had quite a sort of peripatetic career of, of different, different, different jobs. So <laughs> we're, we're intrigued to know what led you to best-selling author. Well, uh, it's fair to say that when I was in my late teens, I tried to write my first book and um, I, I gave up probably when I was about 20. And had I carried on writing, I still would be writing it now. I've got it kicking around somewhere. Everybody and, has uh, one, though, don't they? <laughs> Their first book. I think, I think so. Uh, everyone I speak to, you, you, I, I don't think it's something you fall into. You always have a, a hankering to write. Um, but I couldn't really see back then. I mean, we're going back not that old but we are going back 25 odd plus a few years and um i think realistically you start working and you're earning money and you, you've got life you know and uh, so the, the writing was very much put on the back burner and um as you can as you said i i, I moved from uh, career to career quite frequently <laughs> trying to find something that i was settled in and um really enjoyed um but when I was pushing 40, I thought, what do I really want out of my life? Um, where do I want to be? Do I want to carry on doing what I'm doing for the next 20, 25, 30 years? If you ever get a chance to retire these days, I'm not entirely sure I will. So um, I really thought about it. And I, I think my wife was so tired of me talking about, you know, saying I'd really like to write a book. I've always wanted to do it. And I think she just said one day, just go and write a book. Just do it. You know, get it out of your system and, and away you go. And um, and so I did. And, and we went from there. That's still quite a leap, though, isn't it? Uh, how, how long did it take to, to, to get that first book done? Well, uh, that would be, I would say, four years, but probably only about seven months properly actually writing. Um, and it, it it is a big leap, but it did come about um, through a chance number of events that just seemed to slot into place where uh, my wife was offered um, a wonderful job in the Highlands of Scotland um, and I was working on the south of England so it wasn't really going to work us being in two different <laughs> places and she was very passionate about her work so and I really wasn't about mine so we moved to the Highlands and then um, we had our first child and um, you know we, she was then promoted and we came back to England to another job. So I had a job in the Highlands. I found a good job. I was working with a good team. And then she got promoted and we moved back to England. So I left that job as well and came back to England. And we, did, we just basically did some maths and we worked out that um, we didn't really want our son going into full-time childcare um, and me having to find another job. And, and we just thought, I said, I'll, I'll, I'll stay at home. I'll, I'll be the stay-at-home dad. I'll do that. That'll be fun. It'll be interesting. I never <laughs> saw myself as that ever but I thought you know this would be interesting I'll do it and um for a couple of years and then I'll go back to work and then of course we had a second child so two years became five years and um I was sort of full-time parent and at some point I knew I was going to go back to work but when you've been out of the work workforce for that long you think well what do I really want to do so I had that option um and my wife was on maternity leave with our second and she said go and write the book so that's what I did I she said, I've got six months before I go back to work. I can look after the kids. You go and do what you want to do. So I did. I, I got up every morning. I put my laptop in my rucksack. And I took some sandwiches and I went down the local library. I just sat there every day like a job for eight hours. And I wrote the first book. And that was 2016. 
and I published it in May 2018. Yeah. Right. So it is a big leap. It is a big gap. And it was, a, but there, those, those events sort of came, came, came to fruition. It just fell into place and it worked. So and the book sold. <laughs> yeah, though that's that's the great thing. And I suppose that at that stage, 2018, um, the marketplace was not quite as saturated as it is now. And a lot of authors that are, are sort of the superstars of the indie scene, like yourself, uh, had established themselves at that period. And it, 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 it strikes a lot, a lot of people say it's much harder to do now. Is that something that you'd, you'd agree with? You see, you say that and I think you've got there's merit to that. Um, however, when I was my first book in 2018, I thought I'd missed that boat. I, I thought I was too late um, because I say some of the big hitters really were establishing themselves when when Indies, not first because Kindle's been around for a while, but certainly five years before I did it. If you got in then, there was very little competition um, and you could you could very little organic marketing, no real expenditure on marketing. You could you could put a book out and and really make a name for yourself and, and some of the really big hitters got themselves established there so when I came into it I thought I'm really up against it because the the markets are established there are lots of courses teaching people how to do marketing and how to build your platform and, and I know because I took them <laughs> because I didn't know anything about it either <laughs> so, um, but I, I thought I was I was behind the curve and thought oh, well I'll have a go and see what happens um, and, and it went very well and you mentioned Simon I think Simon came in 2019 I think yeah I think that's right 2020 yeah his first book yeah 2020 yeah so I think I got in touch he came in touch with me in 2019 and, and we, we talked a fair bit and um and he was I think he was thinking he was behind the curve as well but it just goes to show that if you if you write books that people want to read um and you're professional about your approach and how you put them out there and I, th- I still think anyone can really have success I don't think I don't think that the, the the drawbridge is up or the ladder's been pulled up behind anyone. I'd still think there are some big names come in the last few months that I've spoken to who um, maybe they were traditional writers. So they've got a background in writing already, but not in crime fiction and certainly not indie. Um, and they've published books in the last 12 months and they are flying and they're, they're catching me up. Well, still possible. Well, that's encouraging to know. I mean, uh, that's certainly the, the aim of Hobeck is to sort of, uh, I, I suppose, follow that sort of path a little bit um, in, in a slightly different way, being being sort of uh, a hybrid of traditional and, and independent publishing. But um, in terms of what you've learned craft-wise through that period, because, you know, you spent the seven months and the dedication down the library, eight hours a day, uh, when you look back at that first book, obviously it was very successful and it's established the, 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 the platform that you've now got. But is there anything that makes you cringe about that first book? Have you ever gone back, thought, been tempted to go back and, and re-edit it and bring it, bring it up, to, up to the current standard that you're writing? There's, there is that temptation. It does, it does surface every now and again. Uh, if I wasn't so busy writing more books and still doing what I'm doing. I probably would have gone back to it several times by now. I, I, I think I learned, I learned a lot writing that first book because I, I didn't have any background in writing. This might encourage people as well. I didn't have any history of writing, um, publishing fiction, nothing at all. Um, so I, I came at it just with, I'll write a book. I had no idea about structure. I hadn't done any creative writing courses. I have a degree in history. 
which is all very factual and there's no yeah, creativity in that respect and that's frowned upon really um so I, I came out completely cold and I think probably what I would say is a, a friend of mine picked it up for the first time quite recently and um he said oh, I'm reading your very first book and I said oh did you manage to get to chapter nine before anything actually happened <laughs> and he was like it's not that bad and I'm like well yeah you know uh, with my books now you have one two chapters and then you're straight into it whatever it is whatever the case is something is happening immediately whereas that first book I was building a picture and this story and this character and all but nothing actually happened I mean when you look back on it when you read further into the book um, things were there but um, certainly it took a long time to get on it it was a long book and I, I, I think I chopped out about 25% out of it before I published it. And you could probably do with a bit more, to be quite honest. So, but no, it, it's done. I'm not going back, re-editing things. I know that's it. It's there. It's, you know, I'm, I'm still very proud of it. It sold very well, so people liked it. So I, I could be very critical of my own work. Um, but yeah, certainly I've evolved in, in the, I think it's three years now since that first book came out and um, I've written Thirteen books, I think. Right, fourteen. I'm not sure. I lose count. But um, <laughs> that's a common. But thing each as one, well. I, I like to think I'm in. I like to think I'm improving, and uh, it's get it's getting better in the pacing and structure. And you, you learn that type of thing. You only have to write one or two books, and then you really pick up on, on structure and pacing and, and what people like and what they don't. Um, but that said, I think it's very important to stay to what you want to write and don't listen too much to how other people tell you you should write, um, which I know goes against full editing and the traditional market where it goes to an editor and they send it back and say, change this chapter and add this. And I, I don't do any of that. I have an editor. I trust her implicitly. And I have a, a whole team, probably a dozen people who goes through their hands before I publish any book. Um, and then I get feedback from everyone, and some of it I take, some of it I don't, some of it I agree with, some I think is quite harsh. Um, but I trust them all implicitly, and I think it all helps to make a better book. And even, even negative reviews you can learn a lot from, but I would steer clear of really writing a book that somebody else tells you to write. Write what you want to write, and the readers will decide whether it's any good, or whether they like it, want more of it. And, and if they don't, you will find out very quickly. So, <laughs> yeah, that's that's for sure. That's for sure. Um, so let, let, let's look at that team then. You see, you've got your advanced reader team who you trust. Uh, who's your editor? Um, uh, Debs Hobbs Wyatt. Um, she's uh, an author in her own right. She's an award-winning author in her own right, and she does um, courses on editing and structuring and writing. She's she's um, she's all round. She's great. Debs is Debs is lovely. I, I recommend her. But don't book up all my slots, please. <laughs> yeah, don't recommend her too much because I'm too busy. <laughs> but but yeah, you, you can find her. You can find her easily on, on via her website. She lives down uh, down in London, and she's she's lovely. She's wonderful. Fantastic. And um, that first book, presumably, that was the start of the Dark Yorkshire series, was it? Yes, it was. Yes. And that's now stretched to how many books? Uh, six books. Six books. Dark Yorkshire. And uh, now it's the Hidden Norfolk uh, series that you're working on, which is where you are at the moment in, in Kings Lynn. Um, <laughs> which I thought was near Hull yesterday. <laughs> yeah, we, we, had, we had a long debate in the car. Where, and, I asked you, where is he based? And you said Kings King, Lynn, and I said, I said oh, oh, near Hull. <laughs> and then it was Kingston-upon-Thames. Oh, I thought that was near Hull. So, um, yeah, I mean, we had a few few head scratches uh, going on there. Um, <laughs> 
<laughs> but this is why we work so well as a couple. Um, <laughs> <laughs> because my geography is so terrible. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. I've got three degrees as well. <laughs> yeah, Just but not in geography. Not no. in geography. <laughs> Absolutely not. Uh, and then you've got uh, two boys who are absolutely geographically, you know, mad about geography, aren't they? Yeah. So we, we, uh, uh, we were in isolation um, because two of them had COVID, actually. So we played Trivial Pursuit every day and they would just go around the board, landing on the blues and getting them all correct. <laughs> <laughs> but I digress. So the Hidden North, I mean, it's, it, it's always a challenge for any author to launch a new series. And we've talked to a number who've uh you know established their reputation around one series and then moved into something else so for instance adam croft uh has a number of things going uh i mean i suppose that his most successful books have been the standalone psychological thrillers um but the you know he has his night in culver house series and now it's the rutland one which is going great guns um but it's always a challenge to, to to launch something else because people, I think, come so attached to your characters, don't they? And in an establishment, and they've we've we've done this with Malcolm Hollingdrake. He's got his Harrogate series, eleventh book, eleventh book is in production at the moment, and we've launched the Merseyside Crime series. And people are saying, "When's the next Harrogate?" <laughs> <laughs> I I I do I do get I still get frequent emails. I think the last. Dark Yorkshire book was in a test my memory now uh, 2019 um, middle of 2019 May I think it was roughly and yes I, I made a decision to um, write the Norfolk books um, and, and partly that was partly was to, to refresh me because I, I do write quite quickly and I, I do put a number of books out so I, I didn't I was conscious of falling into the rot of um, always writing the same books and same characters and I thought that might get dull or for the readers and for me and, yeah, for and then that too. would show in my work and, and things might fizzle out because I know um, conventional thinking as a series has maybe six to eight books in it and then it sort of dies off now that might be the case in many people's um, but not always I mean Ian Rankin I think Rebus is 20 yards something and, and they're all fantastic <laughs> I love them all so um that's not doesn't that's not ring true for everybody. Um, but I was conscious of that, and I was also conscious of the fact that writing a different series might well hamper my success. It might stall things. You know, if it doesn't work, you spend a lot of time in, in writing the, the new series, and then it doesn't work. You then go back to the old series, and maybe your readers have moved on. It's quite possible if they're used to a book every three four months, and then you don't write one for a year or even two years, maybe they've moved on and they're not interested in other books. So it was a gamble and it wasn't one I took lightly. I did think very long and hard. Um, but then there was also a, a, another aspect to it, rather than just freshening things up. Um, the dark Yorkshire books are very noir, they're very Scandi noir. Um, I have some reviews where people get to the end, they get five stars to say it's a fantastic book. Really depressing, but a fantastic <laughs> book. I loved it. And I thought... <laughs> Depressing Crime people might not be good, good. long term <laughs> success. I mean, maybe there's, there's an audience for it and, and they like it. But I thought, I, I thought I'd try and widen my scope a little bit. So the Norfolk books are um, same sort of complexity, still with characters, um, still very dark, maybe crime, but uh, not that it's cozy or happy go lucky at all. <laughs> but it, it, it was aimed at a slightly different audience, so a little bit uh, a wider audience. Um, yes, it was a gamble. I wrote the first two back to back, and I, I published one in the October and the second in the November. Mm. And 
both of them just those two books alone were outselling the entire dark yorkshire series combined which made me think okay i'm on to something I've done, I've done i've done the right thing it's worked um so then i had to write the third book yeah. <laughs> and, that, and that worked really well and um yeah the, the, the ideas are still coming and, and um the the way that series has taken off is just i was doing well beforehand but and the dark yorkshire books still do well um mm. and I, I i still get emails asking me when when am i writing the next one I keep saying, I'm going to write it. I'm, I'm working on a plot. I have something, but I can't say when I'm going to write it because I need to find time. When, when you're writing four, for me, four books a year, if I do more than that, I'm doing very well. Um, and the Northern books are doing so well that they just have totally taken my focus. And to try and fit in a, a, a Yorkshire book somewhere in between that, I'm going to have to find a way, and mm. I will. Um, but... I don't know when, <laughs> because it's just it's just my times, and certainly the last twelve months with COVID. Um, maybe if without COVID, it wouldn't be so. And it hasn't changed how I work as such, because I still work from home and I was full time writer anyway. Um, but on and off in the last year, eighteen months, my wife's been working from home. I've had two children at home. The school's been closed. Um, doing home education, I suddenly went from having six or seven hours a day to myself to write in <laughs> peace and quiet to having maybe two hours split somewhere during the day in between teaching classes. And, uh, you know, it just became much, much harder. So um, I've maintained the output, but at what cost? <laughs> yeah, yeah, quite. So, you yeah. weren't tempted just you to know. stick him in front of the Xbox like we did. <laughs> no, I don't do that. I'm not a responsible <laughs> parent. <laughs> no, the problem I, the problem I found was they were constantly hungry. So I'd sit down to do some work and then someone would appear and say, what can I eat now? <laughs> yes, that's true. And I, I mean, I had to move my my office. Um, my office is my shed, which is down the end of the garden. And it's, it's a large shed, but it, it is a shed. Um, but obviously when the school's closed, I had to move everything into the house. And I'm still here. As you can see, I'm in the house now. So uh, <laughs> and it's all very open plan in our house. So when the kids are at home and, and uh, my wife in the, in the spare room has her office and the kids have the, their playroom and, and then we're doing lessons and it's just, I bought some noise cancelling headphones, but I only did that last month. I can't believe I didn't do that last year. <laughs> yes. Now there's a good idea. Hindsight is a wonderful thing, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> well, that's the nature of this this gig really, isn't it? I mean, um, that, I, I think there isn't an author we haven't spoken to. If only I'd known what I know now, I'd have done things differently slightly, you know, but then, then again, that's, that you know, a good author, uh, a good indie publisher, whatever, you know, it is about that recognizing where you could have improved and, and, and making those changes. Absolutely, you have to. You have to be. I mean, what I did two, three years ago when I first started in terms of marketing and promotion, and, and uh, it, it's it's chalk and cheese now. You still do elements of it, obviously, but it is a, a changing changing situation. And I, I tend not to give a lot of advice to authors who come to me and say, right what do you do to make it work? Because there, there isn't, if, if there was a, a method, you'd say, do this and you'll, you'll have success. Even if you've got a great book, if you do this, it will work. It doesn't always happen that way. I know some, some terrific authors um, who, who are struggling, or have been struggling, and I'm, I'm sure they'll find their, their way of, of doing it, but it doesn't always work. There's no, there's no golden ticket. You, you have to just keep plugging away. And if it doesn't, doesn't work, you find something that does. And when you find something work, you, you, blog it until it stops yeah. working and then you have to do something else and that's just that's just the way it is so it, it is hard work you have to keep evolving you have to stay 
try and stay ahead of it um, and, and just just really is trial and error and some things will work one month maybe and three months later you'll do the same and it doesn't happen again i think i'm i'm quite fortunate now that i have seemed to have found my audience as long as they don't desert me i'm, I'm doing okay <laughs> so um when i release a book I'm, I'm fairly comfortable now i know what's going to happen but certainly two years ago even even probably up from the first five six books when they were still selling well i didn't really know how well it was going to go when I put the out or how much I just spend on marketing or where I should market and still finding, finding my way. So I have a method now, but I think that's largely because I, all my books go up on pre-order. So I get an idea of how, how well they're going to be received before I even put it out because if, if no one's pre-ordering it and you think, well, your last book wasn't very good, mate, um, but I haven't had that yet. So I'm hoping that doesn't ever happen. But at the moment, every pre-order I put out seems to leap up Mm. more than the last so um i mean i'm doing something right but that doesn't mean <laughs> that i think the audience is there uh, and it usually translates into a, a good launch publication and the back catalog still selling as well so i think it's yeah it's i think you keep doing what you're doing right keep doing that and uh, if something doesn't work don't let it get you down um mm. so much of what you do doesn't work and probably I think the old saying is 80% of marketing doesn't work and the 20% that does is great, but no one tells you what that 20% is. Yes. They don't know. No, like you say, there's no golden <laughs> ticket. There's no rule book. There's no one size fits all, is there? So, <laughs> If you were to break down the percentage of which of the platforms you, know, you spend your time and effort with uh, over at Amazon, Facebook, uh, BookBub, mm. what's, the, what's the split roughly? Uh, for me, it's... At the moment, it's really about 95% Amazon, um, and that's that's high. Mm. Um, I found during lockdowns, a lot of the um, big, not just not just book book publishers or, or book advertisers, but just advertisers in general, because their shops were closed, they didn't really pump money into their Facebook campaign. So their social media campaigns, they sort of switched them off and saved the money. So I was finding that Facebook was massive for me during during lockdown, and people are at home. And not able to go anywhere because everything was closed. So they were on Facebook. They were drawing social media, and 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 so the marketing then was quite affordable. I don't want to say cheap because it depends how much you spend. You know, yeah. what's, what's cheap. You know, um, but it was much more affordable. So I used a lot of Facebook during during lockdown. Um, but the last the last book I published, I, I ran some big uh, Facebook campaigns, and the cost was about six, seven, eight times what it had mm. been for the book before, which um, using the same audiences. So I wasn't really doing anything different to what I'd done before. So as I say, you know, what worked before might not work again. So I, I rapidly had switched those off and I just pushed the money into um, the Amazon advertising. So at the moment, primarily I'm Amazon. BookBub I haven't really used. Um, I did a little bit. I've, I've obviously applied for BookBub, featured deals and that type of thing. And I've had good success with those, but actually advertising on a, day-to-day basis on BookBub. I haven't. And the reason I haven't is because I think my interpretation of BookBub is they have a very large audience that they market their books to, um, but they are primarily focused on special offers and discounts. And, That's and right. Yeah. Whereas, yeah. whereas my eBooks are priced at between $1.99 and $2.99 in the UK and $2.99, $3.99 in the US, and variants around the world. Um, so they're not... You don't have an awful lot to discount there. Um, 
So if I'm going to discount to a book club audience, it would have to go down to 99p or something mm. like that. And then it becomes, you know, maybe it's a great deal, but you don't really make an awful lot from that yourself. So maybe you could do it as a push to get some more audience. But on a, a regular a regular pushing to them, it, it doesn't really work for me at that price point. I think if you price your books higher, it gives you much more flexibility with discounts and offers. And then I think BookBub will be much more useful. But yeah, for me at, at this point, I, you know, I, I sell in large volume at a lower price point um, sure. and that's um, just how I've done it and it's worked for me. So, And do you do paperbacks? I do. I do paperbacks. Um, at the moment, they're all print on demand. Um, I use Amazon KDP for the Amazon yep. books and um, I publish print on demand through Ingram Spark yep. um, for elsewhere. Um, I'm moving, starting to move away from that though, um, because I'm finding that traditional printing houses like Clay's here in the UK, they really made some big moves to maybe caught the indie market because they realised how many of us are out there. Um, yeah. And, and yeah. as a print on demand, as a print on demand, you can get your books into bookshops. I've got some independent bookshops in Norfolk that I, I supply personally, rather than they can order them through gardeners or what have you. But because I'm fairly local, I. I I do it myself and I sign them and, <laughs> and drop them off. So if you go to the whole whole bookshop at the moment, probably has some of my signed books left over. Last <laughs> time I got, so just in case you're listening. Um, but um, I, I tend to do those, but it's still, I find it's, it's print on demand. I think is good um, because it helps indies avoid the upfront costs of print runs and storage and, shipping it very easy you can just do it put it up and then if someone buys it that's great the negative to it for me is you know i think the, the pricing mm. you have to price your book so much higher to make anything from it i mean my books i think 9.99 yeah yeah same and even at 9.99 you know i i make more from my ebook sale than i do from a paperback which blows some people's mind but anyone who, who knows the digital market and ebooks realizes why you don't have the overhead you don't have the printing costs and the distribution mm. and you know all that um absolutely so looking at i've been looking at, at clays i've been talking to them and they're actually making now much more affordable to do short print runs mm. um so <laughs> and i want to say sure you could do 100 200 300 books which for a lot of indies is still a, a massive order to have uh, but once you reach a certain point and i think maybe there's something to consider and i, I you know, the, the prices i'm getting back for how you how much they will charge printing um it is it's far lower and yes, i think the yes. quality is, is far higher oh the quality so is much kind, better it kind of makes sense for me it's going to be how do i flip between doing that how much what the numbers are you how many I order and how to, to, to then switch off the print on demand and, and have them supply Amazon. But but I say clays are clays I'm not, I'm not clays rep and I don't get any kickbacks for this. <laughs> <laughs> but I just I'll make that clear. But um they've been very, very helpful and they're very um informative, willing mm. to talk to indie authors now. I, I don't know where they were weren't in the past or but but they are now and um and they're even helping to integrate with Gardeners, which is the only, I think, wholesaler now who who um, supplies books to bookshops and, and that type of thing. So they will hold, you know, uh, Clay's will hold stock for you mm. and ship it to Gardeners when Gardeners request. Because that's another thing with Gardeners, they, they'll probably only hold 10, 20 copies of, of your book. 
if you're lucky, because they don't know how well it's going to sell. If it starts selling, then they'll hold more. But then you still have to have those books held elsewhere. Mm. So unless you've got a warehouse in your garden or something, it's not going to work for most people. Um, certainly won't work for me if I ordered hundreds of copies of each of my books. I, I, don't, I don't think my wife would be very happy. No. <laughs> Could you probably build a fort out of the box? They would, the wouldn't they? They'd make a happy. Yeah. <laughs> but I, I, I wouldn't want to keep boxes and boxes. That just wouldn't work for me. But they are making strides to make it easier and more cost-effective and affordable for indies to be able to store books. Um, and if and when I can do that, and I know when indies who have done it and are quite vocally supportive of doing it, they then find that bookshops are more likely to order their books mm. and stock their books, and, and that might change. So at the moment, you know, as an indie, I think 10% of my, my, my sales are print copies which I think is about standard for, for an indie, I think, to be honest, from yeah. everyone I've spoken to. Yeah, but I think right. you really can grow that if you can lower your costs to, to compete. And, and if you look at it from a, a, a reader's point of view, if they've never heard of you and you're asking them to part with £10 for a book, you know, I mean, okay, it's less than the cost of the pizza, but if they, they know they're going to like the pizza because they've had that before, <laughs> if, they don't, if they don't know you, they might not, you know, when they can pick up a book from a, someone they've read books Ian Rankin or someone maybe I don't know I would say Ian Rankin but at four ninety nine or five ninety nine they'll probably do that rather than take a punt on someone they've never heard of at nine ninety nine and you can understand that absolutely now there's there's quite a scene where you are in terms of crime writing nowadays uh, yourself Ellie Griffiths Judy Dakin to, to name but two that I can think of <laughs> off the top of my head oh, yeah, the, 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 I know as well Norfolk Noir. No. There are there are more. There's uh, there's Alex Smith who uh, he, he lives uh, Norwich Way, and David Blake. There's uh, another one who's done quite well recently in, in Norfolk. So yeah, there's a few of us. There are, there are a few of us. What is it about the setting that that lends itself? Do you think? <laughs> well, <laughs> lots of people getting murdered. No, it um, it's very quiet actually, Norfolk. <laughs> I, do I think that's what it I'm is. Holiday to Norfolk. I'm a bit worried about all the bodies. Really, it's not that bad. <laughs> I think I think it's um, Norfolk's a, a large county and it has a small population. Only about three hundred thousand people live in the whole of Norfolk, and probably many of those are in Norwich or in Kings Lynn. Um, so you have a lot of patchwork little villages and coastal communities that are traditional fishing communities that aren't anymore, and a few holiday destinations in Cromer that people have heard of, Sheringham, Hunstanton, and um, but I think it's. It's beautiful. It really is. It's a, it's a lovely place. It, it's warm. It's sunny in the summer. It's wonderful. Although it's raining today, um, <laughs> it, it, you know, you can go out and you can be, you can be in a town which has got a lot of character, or five minutes later you can be on the beach and there is nothing for miles, and it, it's it's beautiful. So can we move? That and, and, <laughs> And then and then you've got the North Sea. But it, as much as it's beautiful and you get lovely weather, you also get the storms that come in off the sea absolutely hammer us. I mean, I'm a little bit more, you know, west of the county and you get absolutely battered. So you've got these real contradictions. Um, so it's a great setting if you want to have atmosphere and scenery because you can have you can have hot and sunny, you can have hailstorms, you can have gale force winds and, and threat shipwrecks and all sorts. It, it, you know, it really is. And I think that is part of the appeal. You can just pick a story up you can put it there the, the the land the area takes on a character of its own as i found in yorkshire as well in in, in north mm. Wars, that sort of thing. you know you, you, the landscape itself can become one of the characters that people love 
So why not make use of it? Absolutely. Um, I mean, it's an area I know well. I mean, I'm from Cambridge originally. Um, okay. When we first chatted this week, um, I, I mentioned I used to broadcast to Norfolk uh, with with mixed um, results, I have to say. Um, oh, I can't believe that. Well, <laughs> I mean, I made the mistake of, of, of uh, making a joke about sugar beet, which, let's be honest, is something of a religion in parts of East Anglia. Uh, the entire economy revolves around it. <laughs> so uh, to take the, the mickey out, the, the sugar beet harvest was, was unwise, I think. But um, it, it's interesting. I used to get the most calls from actually the Kingsland area uh, on my show. Uh, I don't know why, but um, I remember having a, about a dozen phone calls when I was interviewing um, Gary Newman. So it seems to be Kingsland is a, is <laughs> a hotbed of... of New mania. <laughs> I was just going to say a hotbed. It must be a hotbed of um, creative enthusiasm. I don't know. Yeah, yeah. I think that's it. I think, I think Gary Newman's dystopian. <laughs> it's probably, you know, it probably appeals to the people of the Fens. It has that certain. <laughs> yes, maybe. <laughs> but I mean, it's, it's still the thing about, I think about Kings Lynn, beautiful though it is, and uh, full of wonderful Georgian buildings and Hanseatic. Uh, sort of legacy warehousing and all that stuff from when it was part of the Hanseatic League. Um, it's a heck of a way from anywhere, isn't it? It, it, it is. It's, um, we often joke in our house that uh, it, it takes you forever to get there. And once you're there, you don't want to leave because one, it takes you forever to leave. So you think <laughs> we might as well just stay here, to be quite honest with you. Um, but I think it takes anywhere, it takes ages to get anywhere in Norfolk. And that's, that's not. Um, don't see that as derogatory. It's, 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 it's lovely because you, you really, once you're here, you think, oh, it's a pain to get anywhere. Like I say, <laughs> if you want to go, just, just go across into Lincolnshire, which is where my, my wife's family are from. And then it's only about an hour, hour and a half away, but it feels like you're driving forever to get out because there are no motorways. You don't really do dual carriageways or anything in Norfolk. It's, um, it's, very, it's very just single rows. And you're going to catch a tractor. You just will. It, it doesn't matter what time of day it is. You just yes. will. So it takes you forever to get anywhere. But it's you know once you're here, it's great. <laughs> so you should come. <laughs> yeah, you're right. You have to adopt a sort of Norfolk state of mind. It's a bit like when you're in Cornwall. Um, you know, just uh, just settle in. Well, we, to... we we found we found the same thing in the Highlands of Scotland. Uh, yeah. It was you you know very very large landmass people few and far between, and it did take you forever to get anywhere. So if you had to drive two hours for a day out. You know, if you're going for a shopping trip, you drive two hours to get down to, I don't know, Perth or, or somewhere. And that was quite normal. You do that in a day. You do two yeah, hours. Yeah, you get used to it, don't you? It's just, you know, whereas we would think, oh, half an hour, I don't know about that. But <laughs> two hours just to get anywhere. So Norfolk is actually a lot easier than uh, it was in the Highlands. So yeah. it's all scale, I suppose. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> um, in terms of the future of the writing career, um, clearly committed to the to the Norfolk series uh is this it for you know you found your the thing you want to do for the rest of of your working life I I think so I I do I I I love what I do and I'm really very fortunate to to be paid to do it I think many people don't find that would like to find that but but struggle um and I have it's it's wonderful it's a great life um as long as people keep reading my books, I think I'll keep writing. Um, there's always there's always a, a, a little part of me in the future that thinks it might be quite nice to um, not tread on your toes at all, but um, maybe take on a, a couple of other authors to my to my imprint and maybe sort of see if I could do the same for them with them. 
Um, but that's a long way down the line. I, I, I'm too busy writing my own stories at the moment. <laughs> and uh, But, you know, it might come a point where I just think, hey, you know, let's try something a little bit different um, and tone back my own writing and, and see if... Uh, but that, I say that's, that's just a, an idea I've had in the back of my head for a while now. Um, but it's going to stay there for a while because I've got, I've got so much going on. I've got, um, I've got another Norfolk book coming out in September. Mm. And, uh, and um, both series have been signed by a, a Los Angeles-based production company. Wow. Looking to make a make TV series out of both of them, Yorkshire first. Um, and if that comes off, then I'm, I'm going to be quite quite keen to be involved in, 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 to some extent. And I say involved, like I know anything about making television programs on it, nothing about that at all. But um, nice to hang around, <laughs> hang around certainly <laughs> with a chair or something and then make myself a nuisance. Um, so if that comes off, then then we'll see. So that's, that's an interesting one. Um, oh, that's fantastic. I mean, it's interesting that Richard Osman was saying at Harrogate um, that obviously Thursday Murder Club and the subsequent one are being turned into films as you can imagine. Um, and he's, he's already found that they have a, a messaging system on set when, when he comes on set uh, or, or, you know, anytime that, uh, you know, I think Mark Billingham was interviewing him as well. And some, some of the things happened to him. Um, <laughs> everyone behaves differently when the writer comes like, on. The writer's <laughs> coming today. <laughs> alert, alert. <laughs> I'm professional. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, wear your smart clothes. <laughs> no, that, that, that's fantastic. As, as I say, like like any of us know anything about being on a television set or, <laughs> or how to make TV or film. Well, yeah, I have a I have a little bit of background in that, but I mean, it, 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 it's um, the thing about it is, it's if you think writing needs patience, my God, television makes takes takes patience. The amount of faffing around to get oh, ten wow. seconds of footage is ridiculous. I've, I've already experienced that some of that in, in the initial processes in the last year. It's um, it, it's quite frustrating. You have to just sit back and, and just let people just do let their thing. <laughs> yeah, those industries they work their own way. They they it's, it's just how it's done, and, and and I think you just have to accept. I mean, from my point of view, anything I try and do, I've always tried to do a hundred percent. And as before, I was writing. I've always been very focused, quite intense. Um, pig-headed and bloody-minded I think my wife says <laughs> but for me it's very focused and very intense and um, I've always just thrown myself at it 100% and just you know made it work as quickly as I could and sometimes not as quickly as I'd like but um, and so when you step out of what you do and you have to put it into somebody else's hands and maybe they don't seem as focused or as mm. intense as you are you think you know I could do this better but I've, I've not in front of not not a camera. I don't think that's, no. <laughs> that's within my skill set. Fair enough. I have a random question for you. I was wondering where this is coming. <laughs> yeah. we, we were talking I about wonder where it's living. going. <laughs> it's related to remote living. If you were on a desert island and you had to take three cats with you, what colour cats, cats would you like? Cats, yeah. <laughs> it's an obsession of Rebecca's. <laughs> what colour would your cats be? Well, I used I used to have two cats. I don't have cats now. I've got a dog now. Um, I used to have two cats. I had a, a ginger tom and a tabby. They were brother and sister, and they were lovely. Um, probably though, I've had those, so maybe one of those. And if I could take those two cats, they would be they would be wonderful. I'd have them back in a shot, uh, and maybe another one. Um, that is a really random question. Do you know, <laughs> <laughs> I did warn you. 
<laughs> you should write a book on these things. I mean, a thousand random questions to ask authors. Um, oh, yeah. Let's go with, um, if my, my youngest was here, he'd say he, he, he would want me to say a tiger. Oh, right. That's a cat, so that counts. A tiger is a cat, so we'll have that. So, yeah, but wouldn't the tiger, tiger eat the other two and you? And that you're really getting into, <laughs> into role here. Come on. On a, on a desert island, they probably would, yes. Um, I'd be like, was it, was it Siegfried and Roy that had the pet tiger? Yeah, that's right. Oh, just, didn't one of them eat, eat one of them or attack one of them? Yes, that's right. They got brain injuries through uh, an attack from one of their tigers. <laughs> so, so maybe not Maybe not a tiger. Maybe maybe a, a, a black cat with a white nose. How about that? Yeah. Oh, that's oh. cute. But ha- having said that, I have seen, um, I don't know, you get these things randomly on Facebook, which keep me away from writing, marketing, anything else work-wise i mean I, I i can find distractions in in anything but in wallpaper yeah pretty much <laughs> um but i did see this wonderful uh clip of uh two i think they were yeah there were two lions in captivity um but they had fully grown but by this point two female you know lionesses they were you know quite a decent size and their original sort of surrogate game keeper you know the, the mother rejected them who brought them up uh, came to see them for the first time in five years, and they bowled up these huge creatures and immediately slipped back into their sort of kitten star behavior. They knew exactly who it was, uh, and that was really rather touching. Um, totally submissive, you know, wanting to be played with and, and express their affection. So maybe you'd be able to strike up the relationship with the tiger. Yeah. <laughs> As long as you can keep it. Maybe. I mean, there there is the old uh, the old uh, Andrew Cleese and the lion story. Maybe that was true. Maybe. Yeah. Maybe. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Do you think you'd be happy on your desert island with your two cats and your tiger? Uh, I'll be honest with that. No, I wouldn't. And the reason (laughs) I wouldn't, I I I know I live in Norfolk and we've got wonderful beaches and I like walking along the beach with my dog, but sitting on a beach, no thousands of people descend on a beach and they sit there for hours. (laughs) I think I, I cannot do that. I no, I'm with you there, brother. Yeah, same here. I don't that, like that. Like whatever floats thing. your boat, that's absolutely fine. So would I be happy being permanently on a beach? I love the beach. I love the sea. I love the atmosphere. I love walking. I've walked along with the, the, the beaches on US. If you ever go out to the Outer Hebrides for a bit of a, a random holiday, go out there because you can go five miles of white sandy beach and you will not see a soul. And it is wonderful. The wind will be, you know, the rain will be horizontal and stinging your face. And you'll be walking sideways and you'll be blown over. <laughs> But it is wonderful. Yeah, yeah. I, I do. I love that. I, Ho- I Hocum actually, Beach is just, you know, God's own beach, isn't it, in many ways? I actually prefer to go to the beach in October or November than in June or July. <laughs> because there's nobody on it. Yeah. <laughs> you can just walk along in the weather. Yeah, I'm with you. Absolutely. Fantastic. Fantastic. Well, it's a bizarre way to finish an interview. But anyway, thank you, Rebecca, for that contribution. This is going to be a new feature yeah, of so the whole cast interviews. I've got to think of a random question every we're week. We're going to create a jingle for Rebecca's random question. <laughs> so you were the first to get the random question and you did very well. Thank you. Thank you very much. <laughs> Jason Daglish, thank you so much for joining us. It's been an absolute pleasure and honour. And we've, we've, as ever, when we speak to people of your, um, with your talent and backstory, we learn a lot. So uh, I'm, I'm sure the listeners will too. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Thank you very much for having me on. Bloody well tell me who sent you. You're a big man, but you're in bad shape. With me, it's a full-time job. Now behave yourself. Right? <laughs> <laughs>
Oh, I don't know. Actually, not too bad. You've been walking an average of 10,000 steps every day. We won't talk about the tiramisu, though. Yeah, tiramisu last night. Uh, yeah, I, I, we've eaten well on our trip. <laughs> Expensively, but well. Um, this is always the thing. If you go on a city break, you've got to allow for the same amount that you spend on a, ho- on a hotel on on food out. It's just tricky because I'm used to having two mouths to feed on a city break, not five. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And they're gannets, aren't they? <laughs> Uh, the, the boys and um, and actually you have to build the whole day around what's what's their next meal and where's it coming from. I think actually though they, to be fair to them, they've done very well in that on that front because Luke is always the one who says, well, what's for lunch or where are we when are we stopping for lunch? When are we stopping for dinner? But he hasn't done too much of that. He's he's been quite good. I think he knows that I know we have to feed him. Yeah, so we planned that and uh, uh, also you know finding things that they're interested in as well as us, so that's always a, a balancing act. They've done quite a bit of karting, outdoor and indoor, while we've been here, which has been something they've always wanted to do. And uh, they got better at it, uh, significantly better in the case of Toby, um, as much to the chagrin of his brothers, <laughs> as he overtook them in a smaller cart. Anyway, that was, that was a lot of fun, and it's been a lot of fun exploring the city. It's such a, um, an architectural melting pot, really. I mean, there's been some egregious building, let's be perfectly honest, in the last 50 years. Um, famously, T. Dan Smith, who was leader of the council here and eventually got put away for corruption, uh, led to the rebuilding of the city centre with lots and lots of concrete bypasses and you know uh, bridges and all sorts of islands of concrete and underpasses, which are looking tired, let's be, be honest. But sometimes they're quite evocative as well. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't know whether it's strange that I actually, I actually really like those elements of the architecture so there's one particular part of the city if we from the quayside here we walk into the city and uh there's there's a couple of concrete car parks very similar to the one in get carter and then there's an underpass but there's elements of of the historic buildings as well and there's elements of nature sort of fighting to to grow and i like that combination of of the concrete the uh, buildings that are sort of 200 years old as well nestled in all that and then nature fighting to grow I think for me the, the best section we've seen so far and I'm sure will be challenged is uh, the bit on um, you know if you think of Dean Street and Queen Street uh, with the, the Tyne Bridge spanning over the top um, framing uh, I guess what would be Victorian building fronts and Edwardian ones, it's just spectacular it has a feel of New York almost to yeah, it Yeah, and uh, I think the way we were describing the city the other day was you, there's pockets of other cities here so there's, there's elements of cities like Shrewsbury and Exeter with the ancient uh, little crumbly bits of old buildings and like you say there's New York, that vast um, when, you, when, you, when you walk around the corner and you see the bridge or part of the bridge and it, it just looks so vast against like you say all the um, Edwardian and Victorian buildings which are sort of six, seven storeys tall and then it's got the, there's a quayside tall Dutch like uh, warehouses and so that reminds me of Amsterdam you know it's got this it's sort of like a hodgepodge of all sorts of elements of different cities. But it's got a, a, a real life to it I mean it was certainly buzzing last night as we were walking back through the city I mean it's a party town and uh, 
I think our hotel's got about a dozen stag parties staying in it as well, banging the doors. In fact, one of them knocked on your knocked on our door at about two in the morning to be greeted by your bleary face. Yeah, so we heard an insistent knock on the door. It was, uh, yeah, two o'clock in the morning, and I thought it's one of the children who were in the room next door. I flung the door open in, in my um, not-too-elegant not nightwear, <laughs> and there's this man, and he... It was quite comical, so I think he was a bit drunk, but he just sort of... His eyes were wide. He put his hands up and he just went, ooh, you know, sort of a a mock sorry expression and and scurried off. (laughs) He did, he did. Well, we leave Newcastle today, um, I think, refreshed (laughs) to some extent. We haven't slept as well as we might. Uh, The air con was broken in the hotel room. It's very stiflingly hot. With the window open, you can hear every nighttime noise and there's plenty of that on on a quayside down in Newcastle. Um, but we come back refreshed in terms of, you know, we've seen something different in the world. We've been uh, got past our, our lockdown, um, the isolation from the kids having COVID. Uh, this has been our substitute for having a break on the Isle of Arran. And another big bus. <laughs> and indeed a very big bus. Um, it's a different type of holiday, and I think the kids have got a great deal from it because they've, you know, let's be honest, uh, we don't venture far from Staffordshire very often with them, so seeing a place like Newcastle with its history with its unique atmosphere and obviously the Geordie accent uh, has been fantastic that was a terrible Geordie accent sorry about that um, uh, it, it, that, that's been good and we go back to well back to the day jobs so we've got <laughs> an absolute stack of stuff building up uh, we've got uh, all manner of proofing we've got uh, well, you, you've probably got a better grip on exactly what we've got to do yeah, this week. Yeah, we've got to finalise printing of uh, books publishing in October then start getting ready for the ones in November. We've also got some submissions that have been hanging around for a while that we need to get through as well. Um, you know, I optimistically thought I would read a few while we were here. but And the big happened. excitement of the week is Wednesday when uh, some engineers turn up and build a studio for our audiobook Empire. Uh, right, well, it's going to be my new home, really. Uh, and that's getting installed on Wednesday. Uh, it's going to require us to shift a load of stuff into storage to create room for it. Uh, but that's going to be an exciting development um, for the company. So does that mean, then, the next podcast will be recorded from your new box? Um, almost certainly. <laughs> Unless we're out on the road again, which I don't anticipate at this stage. Oh, I don't know. You had grand plans for <laughs> dipping to Southwold and all sorts. Oh yeah, we did. Yeah, I think that's. Got... I'm knackered now. Um, <laughs> need to. We need our own bed, and we need to see the cat, uh, who's been with uh, with your ex husband. So um, we'll look forward to seeing Aki, some point this weekend. Uh, but yeah, the studio is going to be the new home of the podcast, and it's going to be the new home of the cat, probably. Well, probably, but um, not when I'm in it. <laughs> and, I've, and I launch into uh, a whole bunch of, uh, of a Hobart books need narrating. And so I'm starting with the Merseyside Crime Series uh, as soon as it's ready to go. So probably Thursday. A Wednesday evening. <laughs> yeah, Wednesday evening I'll be in there. Uh, yeah, there's no MasterChef on Wednesdays, so uh, we'll, we'll be good. I'm quite excited cause, because of the soundproofing of the box. It'll feel like I'm on, on, at home alone. Why is that a good thing? I can... Uh, just run around the house naked and then, you know. <laughs> Good God. Right. Got that to look forward to this week. Well, uh, next week uh, we are working on our... <laughs> it seems to be a regular pattern. We haven't settled on a guest yet. We've got one or two irons in the fire. 
so we shall reveal all next yeah, week. Yeah, we've got an idea of who we'd like to interview. We just haven't asked this person, yeah. so we, we can't say who it is. Well, we're having a business meeting with them early in the week, and um, I don't think it's too much to say that if things work out, it'll be a significant change to the way that we operate. Um, so we'll reveal more once we've uh, uh, investigated further, but um, perhaps there'll be a guest next week on the podcast. We've been very, being very cryptic about it, but that's the way... Uh, business runs I guess yeah sometimes we, we we don't plan too far in advance but there's a reason for that because things change during each week and we come up with an idea of who would suit the week, that particular week to be on the podcast so well don't forget to go to our website www.hobeck.net to check out our authors the books that we've got out our shop there our blog all sorts of things uh, well worth a, a, a good look there and 20% off if you put in Hobcast 20 in the uh, in the box when you check out if you want to buy any of our paperbacks otherwise our books are on Amazon and Kindle Unlimited and we look forward to your feedback on our work and our authors uh, so from me Adrian Hobart and me Rebecca Collins bye bye well, no, just a Hi. moment. I'm just letting the cars go past so Hi, that we I get... I thought you were leaving it so I could say goodbye. No, not at all. Uh, <laughs> I mean, you know, obviously, but let those cars go past, as we say. Uh, thank you for joining us here on the Hobcast Book Show. Don't forget to subscribe to uh, whichever podcast platform you use. Uh, we'd be very grateful for that. Uh, but from us, uh, for this week, thank you so much, and we hope you have a happy and creative week. You've been listening to The Hobcast from Hobeck Books with Adrian Hobart and Rebecca Collins. You can find the show notes at our website, www.hobeck.net. You can also use the exclusive Hobcast discount code for any of the products at our Hobeck online store. Just enter the code HOBCAST20 for a 20% discount. Don't forget to subscribe to The Hobcast and feel free to contact us with any feedback. Until next time, remember our motto, Trad Values, Indie Spirit. Hold up.